Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by David Lazarus. As his Twitter profile states, he is the Emmy-winning money guy for KTLA Channel 5 here in Los Angeles, but he is so much more than that, as we will hear in a moment. He is also the former business columnist for the Los Angeles Times. He focused on consumer affairs. His award-winning work has appeared in newspapers across the country and resulted in a variety of laws protecting consumers. David, welcome. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much. I feel like I'm, I'm the, the very definition of the all the things in between part of your intro. Let's do all the things in between for this particular episode. I actually wanted to start with, because I follow you on social media, we've been able to talk offline a few times over the years. I always have a good time talking to you. And I'm wondering, how did you end up focusing on this beat? How did you end up in this particular area. I know you have a lot of interests. I know you weigh in on a number of different things in between. So if you could talk to us a little bit about how this wound up being your focus. It ended up being mostly serendipitous. This was way back during the California energy crisis. And I was working at the San Francisco Chronicle at the time, and I got shanghaied into covering energy, which is not something I had a background in, but it turned out that I uh, did have a, a propensity for digging deep into the companies that I cover. And in that case, it was PG&E. And before you knew it, I was extremely well sourced within the utility and was able to report out of school on all sorts of things, bonuses going to the managers and cutbacks and ways that they were trying to handle and mishandle the grid. And yeah, long and short of it is I ended up winning a bunch of awards for my coverage and the Chronicle at the end of that whole thing said, okay, well, what do you want to do now? And I said, well, it might be fun to be a columnist. And beyond that, we then had to shape what it was going to be. And the consumer thing just sort of fell into place. Uh, the energy coverage obviously opened the door towards uh, consumer coverage, but it turned out that I'm temperamentally very well suited for all the righteous indignation that has to come with covering consumer affairs and uh, the outrage that that has informed so much of my work over the years is genuine. It, it comes across. I'm you know literally uh, on the side of uh, of consumers and the people who I write for and about, and that persona gradually took off, and the column gradually took off, and then before you knew it. I was in a position to be one of those go-to guys where if you had a consumer problem, if you had issues with a bank or an insurer or somebody like that, I was the guy who you might turn to to untangle it. And then it just gathers momentum. And uh, in the years that I've been writing this column, first at the Chronicle, then at the LA Times, uh, it developed its own weight, its own momentum. And, uh, and I'm very proud of a lot of the work that I ended up doing. Like all good careers, uh, you use the word serendipity to describe how it started. And I hear that so often. And I think you're right. Your outrage um, comes across as extremely genuine. One of the things that I read when we opened up with your bio was that your columns have resulted in a variety of laws protecting consumers. I don't want to skip over that before we get to some newsier items. Could you talk about what those laws were? Did people come to you? Did you say, I see an injustice here? 
what happened between you getting an idea or somebody tipping you to an idea, deciding to write about it, and then new legislation? Well, here's just one example. Uh, Somebody came to me talking about how their checking account seemed to have been hijacked by somebody else and they didn't understand how this could be happening. And I dug into it and discovered that not just this person's bank, but almost all banks were recycling account numbers. In other words, somebody would close an account and they would just take that account number and give it to somebody else. And more often than not, that would be fine. But sometimes that would be a little troublesome. It ended up being that that multiple people would be responsible for multiple obligations. I ended up writing about that. Lawmakers took an interest in how strange and ultimately unfair that was. California passed a law making it uh, illegal to recycle account numbers, at least for a given amount of time. And that's an example of the sort of uh, consumer work that that I do, where it might not seem like it's Watergate or anything of that caliber, but it's the nickel and dime stuff that oftentimes puts consumers at a disadvantage. And because no one's shined a spotlight on it, no one in a regulatory or legislative sense was ever able to say, yeah, that's a problem. Things shouldn't be like that. And then they step in and backfill a solution. And those are the sorts of uh, legislative and legal things that I've been uh, a participant in, which is gratifying, to be sure. My work has also sparked any number of hearings, both in Sacramento and in Washington, because let's face it, there just aren't a lot of consumer reporters who do the investigative work as well. There's a lot of consumer people who might tell you how to get a better deal when you get your muffler changed or, you know, how to save money at the grocery store. But the kind of person who digs into things and then comes up with where things are wrong Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of people doing that anymore for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about. So when these things come up, again, it's very gratifying that lawmakers and regulators will take an interest and frequently they'll step up, if not with a solution, then at least with the right questions to ask. So let's pick up on that. You just said there aren't a lot of people doing this for a variety of reasons. Can you quickly tell us, look, you're obviously very good at what you do, but you've said there's a small field. Why is it such a small field right now? It's really simple, Jessica. When I was doing the consumer column for the Chronicle and the LA Times, and now to a a different extent, I'm doing it on television, you're writing about your advertisers. I mean, it's really that simple. You are sitting in the pool, not to put too fine a point on it. And if you are a publisher, especially a publisher of a newspaper facing major revenue challenges, and you've got somebody on staff who is going after your money sources, that's an issue. I remember when I was at the Chronicle and I did a series of columns on AT&T. Not that... uh, Uh, I I did anything wrong. I mean, all of my columns are accurate. There were never any corrections. There were never any requests for uh, uh, a retraction of any sort. It's just that AT&T, as a major advertiser of the Chronicle, was not happy with all the attention I was giving to its treatment of customers and some of its policies. They went to the publisher, didn't quite get the satisfaction they were looking for, and pulled their $5 million account from the paper. And for a while, every time the publisher would walk by my desk, he would look at me and say, ah, the $5 million man. (laughs) All right, that's a little scary. (laughs) That's a little troubling. And I think 
as time passes and the newspaper industry just gets weaker and weaker, nobody wants to be the $5 million man anymore. Nobody, no newspaper, no publisher wants to be in a position where you've got somebody on staff who is jeopardizing your business prospects. And that's precisely why you don't have a lot of consumer people in the in the publishing world anymore. It's just counter to the business uh, policies and the business uh, uh, moves that are going on. And that's a real issue. And it's one reason why my column ran in newspapers across the country, because those papers either couldn't afford or didn't want somebody on staff who was basically a professional troublemaker. David, it strikes me that there's an analogy here between our lawmakers who have to talk to donors and be responsive to donors in order to keep their jobs and the kind of inherent conflict of interest almost or the inherent tension that newspapers have when they have consumer affairs, consumer watchdog uh, reporters. And I think we could do an entire episode on that, but I know since we have you on, a lot of people are waiting for me to say the words Elon Musk and Twitter. And so I'm hoping that we can turn to that. I know that you've been covering this. I've seen it on social media. I've seen you on TV talking about it. I mean, the first question, is there any chance he's not going to buy Twitter? I know that you've been posting about there's some small print here, but the threshold question, is this going to happen? I think the over-under is that the deal still will go through. For anybody playing along at home, we're talking about a $44 billion at first hostile takeover, then not so hostile takeover, as Musk was able to arrange the financing for this. But that's the real trick right now, is the financing. You mentioned that there was some fine print in the deal, and that specifically is a $1 billion breakup fee. In other words, if some other suitor comes along to Twitter and offers more money and Twitter wants to say, buy Elon, we're going to go with this person instead, then Twitter would have to pay Elon Musk a billion dollars. But if Musk either backs out of the deal or his financing falls through, he would in turn have to pay a billion dollars to Twitter. And if you're the richest guy on the planet, which Musk is, maybe that's just pocket change. But still, it's a billion dollars. But that's the real thing here is, first of all, keeping the financing in place. And I'm working on a story uh, about uh, for TV right now about this. Uh, under the terms of the deal, he's going to have to come up with $13 billion in bank loans, another $12.5 billion in loans using his Tesla shares as collateral, and then as much as $21 billion in cash. Now, maybe if you're Elon Musk, you've got that under your sofa cushions. I don't know. But it's $21 billion in cash. And as we're having this conversation now, there are regulatory filings that show that he has sold off about $8.5 billion worth of his Tesla shares to get him part of the way there. But that's still $12.5 billion shy of the $21 billion in cash figure. I don't know where he comes up with it. I, I guess he's got a plan. He's Elon Musk. He's, you know, he clearly knows how to handle money. But that's, a, I think, a, a symptom of... of a deal this complicated of how the money is going to work. And then going forward, he's already been called the most indebted CEO in America because of the mountain of debt he's going to be saddling Twitter with. At the end of 2021, Twitter had just over $4 billion in debt. Now it's going to have orders of magnitude more once this deal closes. And that means that shareholders, creditors, they're all going to be involved. And Musk is going to have to come up with 
multiple ways to deal with this. According to reports that are out there, he's already looking at cutbacks in terms of salaries and jobs, and he's looking for new ways to monetize Twitter to boost his revenue, which he clearly has to because he's going to be so deep in the hole. But what does that mean? Higher ad rates, new subscription fees? We don't know. So you already hit on a lot of the questions I want to get to, but there's one thing that you said a couple times you said for him, this is pocket change, or this is what he has under the sofa. I'm wondering if you can put this in context for us. So $44 billion for Elon Musk. How much is that for the, I kind of hate this expression, but average American? I mean, is Elon Musk buying Twitter the equivalent of the average wage earner in America buying a car, buying a bike, buying a scooter, buying a cup of coffee. Sometimes I think these numbers are so huge that it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around what would that mean in terms of me spending money on something? You know, I would equate this more as one of those unnecessary expenses that people might have, like, oh, gosh, I'm really tired. I'm going to take a trip to Hawaii. Or, oh, gosh, I'm having a midlife crisis. I'm going to buy myself a Porsche. And that's more like what we're talking about here. Granted, Elon Musk worth more than $200 billion overall. So it's not as though he doesn't have the net worth to deal with this. Although keep in mind, most of his wealth is tied up in Tesla shares. And there's only so many of those he can sell before he starts putting downward pressure on Tesla and really cheesing off all other Tesla shareholders as a result. So he's got multiple plates spinning right now. He needs to protect his Tesla investment. At the same time, he needs to figure out how to fund the Twitter takeover. And then he's got SpaceX and the Boring Company and all of his other things that he has going on. These are multiple holes in his pocket. And he'll have to figure out a way to do that without scaring away shareholders in any of these ventures or scaring away creditors or potential creditors. But I see this mostly as a guy who enjoys playing with a toy, and he's got over 80 million Twitter followers. He's very active on the site. So this is a toy he likes to play with. And at some point, this guy got up in the morning and said, you know, I think I'd like to own that toy. And it's kind of like Citizen Kane. I think it'd be fun to own a newspaper. And here he is. I think it'd be fun to own Twitter. And now he does. So that was going to be my next question, which is you described this in the beginning of your answer as an unnecessary expense, the trip to Hawaii, the Porsche. Is this good for him financially or is this a, is he trying to make a political statement? Is he trying to make a social statement? I mean, is this a financial calculus at all? Or is it just, I think I can exert control over one of the biggest microphones in the world? There's not a lot of percentage in trying to second guess someone as erratic as Elon Musk. So Fair. it could be, right. It, it, so it could be that this guy actually has an amazing plan for turning things around and making Twitter even more powerful against the likes of Facebook, which has many, many more users than Twitter does. So it, maybe he does. I don't know. It's not like Elon and I have been talking a lot lately or at all for that matter. But at the same time, it's hard not to think that he just kind of got a, a bee in his bonnet about wanting to control a platform that he spends a lot of time on, that he sees how much social and political influence it has, 
And he kind of maybe got a little bit of envy for uh, Mark Zuckerberg and thought, you know, I want that kind of influence. I want that kind of clout. I want to be a player. I want to be Jeff Bezos. And so he thought, okay, I'm going to become a Silicon Valley bigwig. Who knows? Uh, I thought one really interesting move that happened the other day is European authorities who uh, have been very active in passing very robust digital rights and privacy laws on that side of the pond. They sent basically a warning message to Musk saying, we've heard about your plans to dial back content moderation, and we just want you to know that we've just passed new laws saying you can't do that that if there is hate speech or misinformation or any sort of speech that might glorify terrorism, that's not okay. And that's an important thing to put on the table because it's too expensive for these big social media sites like Twitter or Facebook or Google or Apple to have multiple systems in multiple countries or regions. It's just too costly. And so they tend to follow whatever the strictest rules are. So in the case of privacy rules, for example, Facebook follows the European laws. They don't want to have to have a European version and an American version. So even though we have virtually no privacy laws in this country, Facebook is complying with what's coming from Europe. And that's exactly what Europe is telling to Elon Musk is before you start opening the door, inviting back Donald Trump, doing whatever else you have planned, keep in mind, we're watching, we've got rules, and we won't hesitate to crack down I think that probably came as a surprise to Musk. I don't think he realized that it's it's a bigger deal than just running a fun little party here in the United States. No, you're running a very powerful social tool that's available worldwide, which means other countries are going to have a say. Well, you said something so important almost as an aside, which is we have virtually no privacy laws. And that is obviously a huge topic. And Musk buying Twitter, the way we run Facebook, Instagram, all of these social media tools obviously is deeply influenced by the fact that we have very different laws when it comes to privacy and when it comes to freedom of expression than, as you said, across the pond. And I think our laws are almost unimaginable to them in some ways, the idea that we wouldn't have more content moderation. I'm not advocating for that or not, only to say to people that I think you have a very good point, which is that you can't have 15 different ways that you adhere to laws when you're Twitter. You have to go to the path of least resistance, which in fact is the path of most restriction. So that brings us to what does this mean for us? You talked about content moderation. You said that um, you know this might be a surprise for Musk, these restrictions. Um, I think the First Amendment might be a little bit of a surprise to Musk, given what he's been tweeting about it. But what will this mean for our experience on Twitter? You talked a little bit about maybe subscriptions, changing ad revenue. Do we know at all how this could change our experience on this social media platform? Well, ironically, most of what we know is through Musk's own tweets about what he has in mind, other than taking the company private, which is is clearly on the horizon once he can get control of the shares. Then we know from what he said so far is he wants to 
cut back on content moderation. We know that. I think the the thinking there is that he feels that the site has become unfriendly to conservatives. He wants it to be more accommodating to what he's terming a diversity of viewpoints and to free speech. And we can talk a little bit about how conservatives don't really seem to understand what free speech, at least in a constitutional sense, means. But I think in the case of Musk, uh, he's uh, also looking at uh, a crackdown on those so-called bots, which are the automated accounts that flood us with misinformation. That's not a bad thing, cracking down on that. He's talked about authenticating the human users. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like it's probably a good thing as well. So in a sense, he's looking to clean house. And as an active Twitter user myself, I welcome that. I would love to see less misinformation, fewer bots, and just a better sense of a a, a community of, of humans who can interact in a civil fashion. But that's the trick. Will it be more civil or will it start turning into something that we don't like? And what Twitter has been working aggressively over the last few years to fix, which is getting rid of the hate speech, getting rid of the misinformation, getting rid of the glorification of violence. We've seen reports that Twitter employees are, are almost in, in rebellion at the moment because they've been working so diligently to clean up the site and make it a more civil conversation. And now they're facing the prospect of reopening the door to a lot of the things that made the problems in the first place and that's not going to be a step in the right direction. I, I saw one interesting thing yesterday where uh, a stat that showed that the number of people who identify as conservatives, their accounts going up on Twitter, while people who identify as progressives have been slashing and cutting their accounts. I don't know how true that is or whether it's just anecdotal, but it seems as though already Twitter is becoming a lighter shade of red. Well, I think I, I saw that on based on your tweets. So at David Laz on Twitter, consumer affairs specialist, you just talked about something that I think we should all be very concerned about, which is what does free speech mean? Does it mean different things for different people? And disinformation and misinformation. If you were given the keys to Twitter for a day or given the keys to any social media platform, are there steps that you would take to try and protect us against these disinformation campaigns that I think we've now all seen over the last few years absolutely have real practical, concrete consequences? I think if I became emperor of the world for a day, and goodness knows I'd like to make use of that, one of the things that Congress needs to do is to catch up with digital technology. Right now, our regulatory and legislative landscape is years, if not decades, behind all of the technological advances we have been seeing coming out of Silicon Valley, whether we're talking about social media or ways that advertisers and marketers get at us or how our personal information is leveraged as a commodity, as an asset. These are hugely important issues, especially for consumers and users like ourselves. And right now, our regulatory and legislative infrastructure 
is just woefully lacking. It's nowhere close to where it needs to be. The Europeans and even the Chinese, who have a privacy law now, are way ahead of us in terms of this. So the key thing here is we need to have clear rules to the road that apply to everybody. That's not saying we need to have some kind of crackdown on free speech. Obviously, nobody wants that. But what we need is clarity as to what are the responsibilities of these big companies and what can users expect as being participants in this. And what that means is, first of all, a national privacy law. We do not have that. Like I say, China has one of those. We do not have it. We just go state by state at this point, and that's not an acceptable way to do things. So obviously that's a first step. Second of all, we need to empower the users, as the Europeans have done, to be able to take control of their experience and their user information, to be able to tell these stewards of our personal information, here's what you can do. You can share it or you can't share it. You have to let me know what you're doing with it. Those are all things that the Europeans have done. We don't have those rights at the moment, and we desperately need them. So were I in the position to make some changes, I think the first thing is to give more privacy laws out there, to make clear what the digital rights are, and then to go from there. But right now, Silicon Valley fights any regulatory move tooth and nail, step by step. They do not want anything that is going to hinder their ability to take our personal information from us and turn it into a profitable commodity that they can leverage for their own business purposes. And I find that just unconscionable, that I have no ability to say, cut that out, that's mine, not yours. Do you have any optimism that we will see a national privacy law, that we will make clear what our digital rights are, that we will give users control? I mean, as you said, and it seems like, again, there's an analogy here for so many different issues in American life right now. We're not doing this on the national level, even though this calls for national standards. It's state by state. I mean, we could have a conversation about voting rights. We could have a conversation about reproductive choice. We could have a conversation about environmental protection. All of those issues, immigration rights, this is also one of those situations where you need national standards. Do you have any hope that we'll get those standards and or what would it take? Let me frame my answer by saying I'm not trying to be political here. I'm not trying to advocate any ideological viewpoint. But I think in terms of just speaking realistically, we won't see any movement like that until Let's be honest, Democrats have control of both the executive and legislative branches and and are able to push forward what some would call a more progressive agenda, but I would say just simply a more realistic agenda uh, reflecting the world that we are in today. So obviously that's the political side of it. I think if we ever did get to that point, and we might in the same way that we seem to be making progress on student debt, for example, because the Biden administration has heard the progressive wing and is trying to take steps, what we'll probably end up seeing in terms of a national privacy law is something, but something weaker than what we have. So for example, California now has the strongest privacy rules in the country. Almost certainly if we had a national standard, it would be weaker than what California has. So then the question becomes, would lawmakers allow states to have more stringent requirements on a state-by-state basis? That clearly should be the case, as it should be across the board, whether we're talking about gun control or other things. You have national standards, but if a state wants to have tougher standards, why not? But I think when it comes to privacy, 
no, we'll we'll get to a, a national standard, but it'll be a weak one. I think that's right. I mean, if we look at, again, many other areas, the national government at the best sets a floor, and then the states can decide to create steps and provide more protection. Uh, but right now, there is no floor in the sense that it's it seems like the Wild West. It's just states for themselves. David Lazarus on Twitter, at David Laz, L-A-Z. Uh, as loyal listeners of the podcast know, I like to end these particular episodes by learning a little bit more about you. We learned in the beginning about how you got into consumer affairs and how you started covering these issues. But I'd like to turn to some, I hope, fun questions to end our episode. The first one, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Oh, jeepers. Uh, I suppose <laughs> I suppose that would be Charles Dickens, because not only am I a huge fan of his work, but any mind that could uh, run the, the gamut from the Pickwick Papers to Bleak House, I want to talk to that guy. That, that's some great storytelling. So Dickens would be real high on my list. And then, of course, I'd have all four Beatles at the other end of the table because, you know, they're the Beatles. So what are you what are you saying? You know, my dear friend of many, many years just said to me last night, you know, I'm not really a fan of the Beatles, right? And I, I Freudian slip, I almost thought, and we're no longer friends, are we? But can we, David, pause for a moment? How long have you been using the word jeepers? Oh, jeepers, a long time now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even twice a year. Uh, it's, <laughs> I guess I've got a lot of little colloquial expressions that would be very much at home in the 1930s that somehow have made their way here. It's part of my charm, Jessica. It absolutely is. All right, next thing, next question. You're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? Uh, I would have to say it's, I mean, my first thought was going to be, oh, it's going to be pizza, obviously, because pizza is one of the main food groups. But, you know, maybe it's going to be Chinese food. Maybe it's going to be pasta. This is a toughie. But ultimately, yeah, it'll be pizza. Yeah, it's we're going to pretend it's something else. We're going to ask to see the menu, but we already know what we're going to order. It's a facade. Last question. You get one superpower for one hour. What is it and why? As a former comic book collector, I can tell you without hesitation, this is a question I have wrestled with since childhood. <laughs> the first uh, answer is, oh, I want Superman's powers, obviously. And that's a whole you know, bunch of powers, so it's super cool. But if you had to pick just one, boy, that's a toughie, because flying would obviously be cool, super strength, real cool, but invisible that's kind of neat too in a sort of you know voyeuristic sneaky creepy stalker way mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, ultimately i think maybe i'd want to lean towards professor x and his uh telekinesis and telepathy and the ability to influence other people to make good decisions because i can think of more than a few people especially in one of our political parties who i would love to help influence make good decisions Jeepers, David Lazarus, thank you for passing judgment with us. It's been my pleasure. You can find David on Twitter, as I said, at David Laz, L-A-Z. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and more frequently now, TikTok, at Levinson Jessica. 
want to really thank our listeners for joining in these conversations. Please rate, review, subscribe, do all those things. We appreciate it so much. And we wish everybody a great day.